This is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a nonprofit, self-organized podcast exploring the history and culture of madness and the way that these forces influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of shared context. This episode contains discussion of mental health crisis and intervention. So, so far, we have spent some time going over liberatory frameworks and possibilities that they hold for a more empathetic, just future of madness. But what does it mean to apply those frameworks and bring something new into being? We wanted to talk to someone doing the work. Joining us as a guest today is B. B is a founder and member of a collective organizing team for Call Bubby, a group of abolitionist peers working to create anti-Sanism resources in Portland, Oregon. Specifically, they are creating a peer-based, non-institutional response system for mad people seeking support. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Welcome. We're so <laughs> glad that you're here and so glad to be talking to you. I feel like We've learned so much from you already um, and can't wait to have a deeper discussion of your work and Call Bubby. Um, First of all, can you tell us a little bit about Call Bubby? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a very small group of abolitionist peer support specialists in Portland, Oregon. Um, We all identify as mad, neurodivergent, disabled, and just kind of happened, but we're all trans. Uh, (laughs) our goal uh, is to basically offer direct peer support from a disability justice and anti-sanism perspective for folks basically in the Multnomah County area or like Portland, Oregon um, area. Yeah. Amazing. Um, So, you know, as in the name, you can call Bubby. So (laughs) what can people expect when they call? So right now, uh, most of the, when we go out on community visits, um, we're actually doing it through a Google form. So the name's a little misleading, at least at this point. Uh, Type into a form and summon Bubby. Yeah, summon Bubby, exactly. <laughs> Intricate uh, ritual. Yeah, like a ritual, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically our core program use summon bubby through the google form uh and we're doing community visits and so what we do is we kind of get um a sense of what you're dealing with and kind of what communities you're a part of like if you've been feeling isolated or like basically what you're dealing with right now um and then what we do is we create a resource sheet before our call that has referrals out to peer support groups that have similar lived experience as you that might be going through similar things um or if you just need something like case management you know we'll hook you up with a resource out in the community uh and then what we do is wherever you feel comfortable meeting we can meet in people's homes we can meet in public areas like a park again whatever's comfy for the person uh we go out we meet in pairs we hand over the resource sheet and we just kind of do like an hour and a half peer support session um which is really like just talking with another neurodivergent friend for a little bit about what you're dealing with um and then what we do is we follow up um from the call after the fact uh with any additional resources that we thought might be helpful that we didn't address on we did you know that we found out about on the call um yeah 
Oh, and we bring a bag of goodies because it's called Ball Bubby. So we bring Oreos <laughs> and uh, strawberry hard candies, depending on what someone's allergens are or allergies. So you sweeten the deal. Yeah, but also like... The thing is, like, crisis response is really scary a lot of the time, like, because it's coming from, like, a medical-based framework, and it's, like, overly serious and clinical, and to have, like, it's called Bubby, like, it's supposed to be warm, so, like, showing up with cookies and, like, just making it a little bit cozier, like, that's kind of what we wanted, so that's what we're trying to do. It's your signature. Yeah, I love that. So what is mental health first aid or first response how does your approach differ from more typical systems connected first response? Okay, so I think the the first thing that might be like really helpful to cover um, is what is crisis, right? So a crisis situation, um, uh, Umu Silla, uh, they are an amazing collectivist based um, therapist from New York. They're incredible, um, but. Uh, they define it as crisis situations often stem from multiple unaddressed issues with a person's ability to exist comfortably in their environment. Um, so essentially, we're looking at crisis as, okay, someone's nervous system is just way too jacked up is not a medical term. But basically, someone is in like a really sympathetic, activated state because there's just something that makes it so that they can't exist comfortably in their environment. Um, and so the difference between like what we're doing versus is what, you know, other more traditional systems are doing is really the perspective that we're coming from when we're looking at that crisis. Right. And again, Umu is just the greatest. Um, but the way that they describe it is the colonizer gaze versus the community member gaze. So we're coming at it as a community member. We're saying, okay, this is a person that's within the mind community. So the mad, mentally ill and neurodivergent and disabled community. Someone that belongs to a community that I belong in. And they're amazing and like different and beautiful brain is just like needing some some like warmth right now or some kind of soothing. Um, I make sure I actually, you know, answer the question. Um, but yeah, is it helpful for me to go over like what we actually do on a, in a crisis situation? I think situation? that's great. Yeah. Um, essentially what we're trying to do is when someone's in crisis, the way that I like to think about it is like, they're kind of like a pot that's like boiling or like a kettle that just needs to release some steam. Um, and so what we're trying to do is allow them to express their emotion, like in a healthy way, right? So they can kind of release some of that steam. But while they're releasing some of that steam, we're also trying to co-regulate with them, right? So co-regulation is basically, everyone does co-regulating. When you hug someone, that's a form of co-regulating. It's basically two people's nervous systems are syncing up. So like when a mom cradles their kid, right? Mm -hmm. You're soothing them. And so when I'm, you know, taking deep breaths or speaking really calmly, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to allow them to blow off some steam while also like pulling them and anchoring them into like an emotional range that can make them think kind of like think a, at least a little bit more clearly. Um, and so we get into that emotional range where you're able to kind of talk with me and tell me about like what's going on. Um, and then what we do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something called um, motivational interviewing where I'm going to try to see what is happening right now and wh what is the bet what is the outcome that you want to get to 
Um, and then I'm going to ask you, like, what resources do you have at your disposal, right? So what places can you go to? Who can you talk to? Can we come up with a 24-hour plan? Um, and basically kind of do a safety plan. So whether that's for the next 24 hours or the next week, we're going to try to use our collective minds. If your executive functioning is offline, I'm going to try to pull in some, we're, we're syncing our nervous systems as best as we can to kind of come up with the next step. So it's really about there's a lot of words, but it's essentially just let me give you a presence that feels like an emotional hug, validate your experiences and come up with the next steps to try to get you out of the the, the catalyst for whatever set off this crisis. Yeah. So quick follow up, because one of the things that we talked about in one of our previous episodes is the idea that the environment is what is just inherently disabling. Mm hmm. And it sounds like your approach really takes that yeah. concept to heart. Yeah, yeah. I think um, all of our internal states, like, influence each other's internal states, right? You ever be, If you're ever around someone who's in a crappy mood, it's really hard to stay in a good mood after the fact. Like, we're, we're, we've talked about this, like, not in the podcast before, but we're apes and we're supposed to be living in communities and we're, our brains are naturally syncing up. So, yeah right now unfortunately we're, we're really isolated from one another and yeah we're just trying to i don't know provide what we're naturally supposed to be doing anyway in a really isolating environment <laughs> yeah isolation was the word that came to my mind not just people experiencing isolation but also that your approach isn't seeing people's experiences as isolated from their context right exactly exactly yeah. And so the second ha half of that question is, so how does this approach differ from systems connected first response or what people might traditionally be led to seek out in, you know? I think the biggest thing is when you, when in a traditional sense, um, in traditional systems, a lot of times what they're doing is they're comparing you against uh, what they consider a healthy baseline, right? So what is considered a medical baseline. And what they're doing is, unfortunately, they're kind of evaluating you based on this, I don't know, idea of what healthy or like um, stable looks like. <laughs> so whether that is what your affect is, like, maybe they the one of the phrases is affect incongruent to context in psychology which is basically your emotional response is not um in parallel with what the environment is like which is so subjective um so i'm not comparing you with a really subjective standard first off so an example of that yeah kind of affect not matching would yeah. be like I perceive that you're in a really hard situation and you're laughing. Yes, exactly. So it's like, that's me saying I'm making two levels of judgment, both that like your situation warrants a particular kind of response based mm -hmm. on my evaluation. Right. And what you're doing in reaction to that doesn't conform to my idea. Your previous experience, yeah. your own previous experience. Right. And so it's like, I don't, don't think it takes too much of a leap to see how that could go wrong. Right. Because yeah. you're, because what you're doing is you have both the medical model and your own context that you're pulling from us. To and your bias. And your bias of what's mm -hmm. considered normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing is bias exists, like yeah. whether you want it to or not. Um, 
So I'm not comparing what you're doing to anyone else or any other model of how you should be reacting. Uh, if you tell me that there's something recording you in your house, who the hell am I to say there's <laughs> something recording you in your house? I'm here to make sure that you're safe from whatever's being recorded in a way that feels comfortable for you. Um, not to, I hope I know that can be very triggering for folks. So apologies. Um, yeah, so I'm not comparing you with like a specific model of how you should be reacting. And I'm also not, it, what we're doing is we're not, how do I say it? We're, it's not a surveillance system, right? So when a lot of folks um, that are contracted out by the community go out, they have to record what happens during the interaction. So then there's a trail of information linked to a person and what that interaction with the state has been. So you, you're basically trying to track the crazy people out in the community to see where they, you know, where they are, which is um, very, uh, I'm trying to look for a word, um, oppressive. I think that might be the word. Yeah. Controlling. Um, controlling. Yeah. Um, how does disability justice apply to your work? It applies to our work because the discrimination of mad people is derived from ableism. Um, so Satanism is just like a tiny offshoot of ableism, um, the umbrella of ableism. Um, ableism is really about having a standard environment that isn't suitable to different bodies and body minds, right? Uh, and we're dealing with the body mind at that point. So whether it's someone that, you know, sees things and therefore can't drive a car properly, um, whatever. Um, so there's the whole perspective of the Satanism, but there's also the perspective that a lot of the systems that folks that are um, mad depend on are the same systems that folks that would traditionally be considered uh, disabled. So whether it's someone that might use like a wheelchair or other kind of um, person that might visibly um, be disabled, we depend on those same systems. Uh, so whether it's SSDI, um, whether it's ADS or C, um, CPS, or th there's basically bunches of different systems that we all have to interact with. Okay, I think the the systems I was looking for specifically though were um, ADS and APS, right? So basically older folks and folks that are disabled. Um, well, I'm excited to take the next question. Um... So for those who don't know, a Bubby is a Jewish grandmother. Um, so how, so you're kind of like evoking that in your name yeah, and yeah. kind of the like warmth, but also the cultural specificity of that. So how does Jewishness inform what you're doing? Um, and what's the significance to you of evoking that identity or kind of like kinship experience? Absolutely. Uh, so ethno religion right so we have the cultural component and you know whatever but culturally um when jewish people at our best we're really goofy like we're really freaking goofy um uh, and i think that there's too much seriousness like in a lot of interactions um which you know is activating so having something that's a little bit light like let's just try to solve this problem man you and me we're in it together um, so a little bit of goofiness is nice. Um, I also think we're like annoyingly analytical. Um, so there's never one answer for everything, which is really nice, uh, because it's, we're not binary thinkers. Maybe I'm just like hyping up Jewish people too much right now. Um, I mean, it works great for me. Yeah. 
sorry. Um, but yeah, if someone's l- lunging at you, like maybe they're lunging at you because you spooked them and they just came out of like a traumatic event. Like you don't know. Like it's it's much. I don't know. We're we're not going to be like this is happening because of X. We're going to make this is happening. Why is it happening? Like let's get curious about it. Um. So yeah, maybe yeah. that's just me hyping up Jewish folk, but yeah. I mean, I also think, you know, I'm I'm going tagging back to the goofiness mm-hmm. and like I'm also Jewish and I think that there's something about like a group of people who like have like a ancestral memory of facing down darkness. Yeah, the goofiness. <laughs> right. Yeah. So to come out of that with just like a very, you know, like a a kind of like ingrained humor yes that's like that's like rooted in hardship yes and I feel like there's something about like the experience of being mad experiencing neurodivergence mental illness right mind folks like you were saying in this environment like that is not an easy experience no like how do you like essentially like confront those challenges and how do you do it together as a group of people because that's also very inherent to Jewishness yeah so I think there's something too like I I really enjoy that connection Uh, that's awesome yeah because all of our holidays are basically winning when we didn't die like like there's a whole chart there's a lot of like you know yeah people talk about like our like religious music is in a minor key yeah you know it's just like we're 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 a sad people. <laughs> we're comfortable with hardship. Like it's there's no judgment. It's just part of the deal. Right. Yeah. So it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that that's. Yeah. I don't. How did you come up with the name? Um. So when I'm at my best, like when I'm doing peer support, um, I just w- basically feel like a really. How do I put this? Like overly direct, goofy grandma like when I'm feeling my best when I'm doing peer support and I'm like okay let if how do how do I make this into a bigger thing than me just individually doing this kind of work mm-hmm. yeah so there's almost like a persona that you're bringing to it and like you're drawing from that yeah. yeah yeah but almost like it for me it feels like a level of unmasking mm. where I can actually exist as myself right because the thing is like we don't live in a as Jewish folk we're not the dominant culture right so to be able to just be sitting there and being goofy and a little bit like terse and like analytical like loving but brusque yeah exactly weird but also practical yeah exactly it's Mm -hmm. it's the environment where I can actually be myself in so yeah well I love that what other frameworks do you bring to what you're doing yeah, absolutely. Um, so we talked a little bit about the co-regulation. Um, there is a narrative psychology, which is basically that people um, experience life through their own internal story. Uh, and they basically deal with different experiences by observing stories and listening to other people's stories. Um, and so it's something that you guys are actually doing with with like being able to recontextualize like folks individual narratives with your podcast um but when we refer when we're both talking with folks to say hey i have similar lived experience with you or when we're referring out to peer groups that are specific to like what those person's identities um or um things that they're living with are what it does is it recontextualizes what they're dealing with so it becomes part of a broader narrative rather than an individual narrative of 
your family, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, and I think it's pretty standard, but we're dealing with a little bit of a transformative justice, um, which is essentially a community approach, not a carceral approach to things. Um, and so basically based on, I want you to feel like you're in community with me after I visit you. I want you to be like, hey, well, yeah, I remember B. They're, they're cool. Um, and I also want you to find resources within your own community because it's kind of a disability justice thing to turn your diagnoses into a point of identity and then put that point of identity into community. Um, yeah. And we use, just for another little one is we use motivational interviewing because what what is good for you is not necessarily what's good for me. And I want to find out how what you want and how to get you there, depending on what's worked for you in the past. Can you say a little bit more about what motivational interviewing is? Yeah, sure. Um, it's basically trying to figure out what someone's goals are and what their ideals look like. So whether it's their value system, whether it's like where they want to be, um, and then trying to figure out what has worked for them. Because essentially what you're trying to do is you're going to try to get from point A, then you're trying to define what point B is based on what they want point B to be. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to pull from what tools they have and what has worked for them to get from point A to point B. Could you talk a little bit more about what the significance is of mad people responding directly to requests for support from people experiencing madness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a little bit like the, the, the previous answer where I had said something about like, I'm coming at it from a community member gaze rather than like an oppressive gaze. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know if it's okay to say this, but I'm not looking at you with fear and I'm not looking at you like a spectacle. Like I'm not looking at you like I'm viewing reality TV. I'm looking at you as I'm looking, I'm able to relate to you in your crisis from when I was in crisis as, and I'm able to kind of understand the level of vulnerability that, and like the weight of that, that you are allowing me into at that time, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Why is call Bubby necessary in the presence of existing systems? Um, I think most existing systems reinforce trauma, right? Reinforce cycles of trauma. Um, so to be able to have an alternative to be outside of system is really important. Um, and again, I think I said this before, but like, I don't know. I'm not keeping a track record of you. I'm not trying to get you to the hospital. Like, I don't consider the hospital safe, I think is the biggest thing. I mean, if you want to go to the hospital, I, I honor that, but it's not my end goal for you. Um, In a really terrible way to put it, you don't risk hospital socks while talking to me. Um, Yeah, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. So right, a space for where people can, like, freely share right. their experience without like carceral intervention right yeah um so many of us and we might even say all of us are connected to people with madness or mental disability um and a lot of people are reliant on the support networks around them to ensure their safety to ensure their care so what are some of the principles of your approach that people could internalize or think through um in supporting loved ones yeah um so the way I like to think about it is kind of sitting with somebody in their brain. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's a less lonely place because as mad folk, 
like we get sucked in there and it's a very lonely place um so in order to do that um really just giving someone a platform to feel whatever feelings they have like and all feelings are valid like what we do with the feelings you know like don't smash stuff but like uh, allow them that space validate what they're feeling right so that they understand that what they're feeling is you know okay and it's just part of it's part of the deal of being human um and I, what i like to do a lot with folks is allow someone to kind of tell their story like whatever that is um and kind of take an active listening role right so what i like to do is when someone's telling me about what's going on i visualize being them and then like a movie of like what they're experiencing to try to get into their mindset um and then what I like to do as well is when they're saying something, I ask if I can like re-say what they said, like to make sure that I understand. Um, and it's also very validating to re-say what they're saying in your own words because it shows that, hey, like this this little brain chunk that you shared with me that I'm like privileged to be able to see as well, like I'm I'm on that whole ride with you of you giving me um part of what what's going on in your brain and basically just reassuring someone and validating really what they're experiencing and that you're not judging them for it I think is really the biggest thing so you're saying the the blame and judgment technique we should just stop doing that <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little confused yeah. no exactly just there's no there's no value judgment it's mm -hmm. not necessarily good and it's not necessarily bad it just is like and that's okay like mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think for some people that can mean building up their own comfort and tolerance mm -hmm. um so that they can sit with somebody else's discomfort yeah I think the biggest thing too is you kind of want to take into account like the mental state that you're in before you do it right mm -hmm. um because again you're syncing up your nervous system so you only have capacity for so much emotionally which is energy taking so if you're going in and you're jacked up because like you are stressed from something or whatever you might not be in the best place to listen so like do some grounding before you do it like whatever is grounding for you maybe it's listening to certain kind of music maybe it's like having a cold cup of water like whatever it is and then go into it make sure you're kind of prepped before you go in what are some of the challenges of creating something that didn't exist before and what inspired you to do that Oh man, uh, I hope this isn't too negative. Honestly, the biggest challenges have been making sure that I maintain at least some amount of self-belief. Um, it's like pulling something out of nothing and being and when it's so counter of all of broader social narrative of what you're trying to build. And you also have folks that will tell you like that's not possible like um just trying to believe in yourself a bunch and um finding people that also believe in what you're doing I think is really important um so it's kind of a combination of believing in yourself finding folks that believe in what you're doing and um finding out what other people are doing that's similar to your work so you can kind of have some comrades that are like kind of in the fight with you um and asking the folks of I guess what you're build who you're building for like 
what can we do better like every single time you go out and do it so yeah just keeping good people around you i think is and self-belief is the biggest thing so i think there may be some kind of kernels in this and what you just talked about in terms of surrounding yourself with supportive folks um but what input would you have for someone interested in starting a justice oriented project in their own community um I think the biggest thing is before you start anything, like particularly for, so you you, you want to figure out what the landscape is like from a local issue or like on the local level. So what kinds of organizations or other people doing similar justice oriented work are in your community and like ask them about like what they like doing or like what's been helpful for them and what current issues are. And then you're also go going to want to make um, connections with folk who are dealing with the issue on a more broader level. So you can kind of see like, again, it, this is all about connection and community, but trying to figure out like maybe there's a justice oriented um, advocacy, right. That might be adjacent to what you're doing. Um, so figure out the landscape, ask people that you're going to be working with. So the demographic that you've decided on, like what's helpful for them or what things are kind of lacking. Cause you don't want to just make something. And then it turns out that like, that's not actually what, what, what solving the problems of what folks are, are wanting. So you kind of want to figure out your demographic, what problems are, are they experiencing? Um, yeah. And then what you want to do is as you're starting to build like do something tiny, like don't go crazy, like don't make something huge, do something little and then ask for feedback from the folks that, that are using the thing that you're making and then iterate on it like slowly but surely. Um, I think that's really, yeah, that's it. I love that. It's really practical and grounded and well, relational. You. Thank you. How can people get involved in what you're doing, especially those in Portland, Oregon? Okay. Um, so I think the biggest thing right now, um, because we're really tiny and we're trying to build this all up, um, we're looking for any kind of spaces to be able to host our peer groups. That would be really helpful. So if you have like a community space or you'd feel comfortable allowing us in your space to host the groups, that'd be awesome. Um, it, maybe I shouldn't plug it here. I don't know. You can always edit it out. Um, but we have a GoFundMe uh, if folks want to donate. Um, I was going to edit it in. Oh, really? You didn't bring it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want to. Okay, cool. Yeah, right now we're all doing this in like a volunteer capacity. And um, I am really bootstrapping right now. I am living in a van to make sure that this thing comes um, to fruition. Uh, so, yeah, th those are the biggest things. Um, and slowly but surely, we'll you know, accept more volunteers. We just want to make sure that all of our protocols and uh, safety stuff are in place so that like folks can actually feel like they're making a difference and everything's safe for the folks that we work with. Um, so if somebody goes on GoFundMe and looks up Call Bubby, mm -hmm. will they find the GoFundMe? I'm not sure. I think so, but it's on our, our website. If you go to callbubby.org and then there's like a big red donate button um in our navigation so if you're on 
mobile, just click the little hamburger menu and it'll pop up on the bottom. And if you're on desktop, it'll be in the top right corner. And if people find you on Instagram, yeah. can they also yeah, find your link? link? Okay. It's in the link tree. Yeah. I just really want to underscore this because I mean, like what you're saying, it's really hard to start something new, especially yeah. when it comes to that sense of self-belief in the face of what we're told is possible for ourselves individually and for our communities collectively. And, um, you know, I'm based in Portland. There is such a strong need for peer oriented, grounded, compassionate, networked community-based support, which is what you're doing. Um, And so I really want to encourage people to chip in as they can to make a donation. Um, Like you're getting this off the ground and we as a community can stand with you and making that happen. Well, thank you. So just to divert a little bit, um, you know, you've gathered experiences from community members. You're bringing your own personal experience to your work. Um, I like to act, ask this question across kind of cross cutting across different issues. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want people to know or understand about madness? Um, I think the biggest thing is understanding that neurotypical doesn't actually exist (laughs) um so the way that I view diagnoses especially as someone that's part of the mad community and also views the DSM as kind of a an oppressive tool um is it's actually starting to do something really cool which is mapping subsets of different kinds of brains Mm. um and so when you think about diagnoses outside of the connotation of illness and you look at it as simply communities of different kinds of brains. Um, I don't know. You can kind of start to see that there's actually just, there's so much diversity that we can't actually see. And what you're seeing is you might see like a negative aspect of it when like the pressure gets too much, but really there's this whole like rainbow cornucopia of the way that people are experiencing life. Um, So to kind of look at it as like, I don't know, just part of natural diversity, I think is the biggest thing. Yeah. I've through all of our research too, like I've been increasingly convinced that madness is a feature, not a bug. Right. So like, I relate to what you're saying. Good. It's awesome. Um, what's the future you want to see for yourself and your community? I think it's probably related to my last answer, but um, maybe to just be open-minded and not value judge things as much. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, by being open-minded, you can actually start to view some of that diversity because you're making comfortable spaces for people to be their authentic selves. Um, And by being able to have that space for someone to be their authentic selves, that's actually how you create community, like an authentic community. So you're creating those bonds, (laughs) basically that network effect that's really going to help us through hard times um, as a community. So, yeah, maybe just be open minded and, um, yeah, kind of just allow someone to be themselves so that they can, I don't know, you can form a good bond or I don't know, relate to them. Maybe not even relate to them. Maybe just appreciate them. 
focusing on more interpersonal understanding, like, and that is an origin for a different kind of community. Yeah, but almost like viewing stuff that instead of like with value judgment, with curiosity, like, oh, that's weird and kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to know more about it, you know? Um, I think being curious and open-minded is really the thing that's going to help us form stronger bonds as a community, as a diverse community that's been oppressed by a broader social narrative into fitting a container. <laughs> and that those feel like really strong values that you hold and that you're bringing into your work. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for trying to build it. Yeah, <laughs> I have a question that's not on here. And mm. so, you know, feel free to, you know, skip it or answer it whatever length you want. Mm -hmm. But um, is there anything that you'd want to tell people about like your origin story or like how you got started doing this? Oh, yeah. Okay. How much longer do we <laughs> God. We've got we've got a little bit of time. Okay. Um, so I was involuntarily hospitalized when I was 13 years old by my school, uh, because mm -hmm. I dealt with suicidal ideation pretty bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found one of my notebooks. Um yeah, and that was extremely traumatizing. Um and the thing is, like, when you're really young, you don't understand that it's a problem with the system and not you. So after, you know, I got out of my house, which was pretty, uh, it was pretty rough go at it. Um, I, like, you know, did what you're supposed to do, which is, like, get a job and, like, I was a software engineer for a long time and I was like, okay, I finally don't, I was just like an angsty teen or whatever. Uh, and then when I hit 25, um, I had uh, a pretty extreme altered state. Um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, but like when it gets into really bad points, it gets really bad. And I started to realize, oh no, this is something that I'm going to have to deal with like as a thing. Um, yeah. So starting to like, having to reimagine my life accepting that I am a mad person like re doesn't matter what kind of safety nets I build in it's just part of the deal was a big point uh and then after I got out of uh doing work for the crisis response team for Multnomah County um there was an even deeper sense of like holy crap um uh, I'm also sharing community with a bunch of folks and re-experiencing the things that I did when I was involuntarily hospitalized and having to almost rehash that history to be like no this was not a personal failing this was you were incarcerated and you have to go through an unpacking the trauma of incarceration um, and then also having to accept my identity within the disabled community was a really hard pill to swallow. Um, but the only way that I was actually able to do that was through the work and like a lot of the ideas of other folks within the disability justice community, like Vesper Moore is amazing. And a lot of, uh, I remember the first place I started was like Project Let's and some of their old zines when they were the Icarus Project, I think it's called, or the Icarus. I, I always mess it up and um yeah so yeah I think I just I knew how painful 
having to accept that part of yourself is and then wanting to the way that I was able to get through that pain of like processing that was through community so being able to provide that community to other folk was like kind of how this came to be well yeah. I thank you for sharing that thank you yeah and or, I think there's like there or at least like part of what I hear is like such a a process both of like reckon reckoning and recognizing the past and like integrating your experiences and your identities in the present yeah and building the community around you that helped you kind of become yourself yeah um and create those spaces for other people so it's like you are creating what you're creating for others what was most meaningful to you. Yeah, a lot of that. And I think maybe like a really simple way of putting it is, this is pretty personal, but I think as mad people, we have been kind of taught that we are broken uh, and undeserving of care. So whether that's through any kind of care, so whether it's intimate care or whether it's community care or whatever, allowing people to know that they are worthy of like I don't know love and care yeah. can I give you a hug yeah absolutely and of course they are and of course you are yeah and you're doing something so important for all of us by like reaching our people like you're going to them you know and you're you're trying so hard and again like you're you're making something in a void that just didn't exist thank you and like there is no more powerful creative act in my estimation thank you yeah I don't know caring for other people almost feels like trying to care of myself well we're all connected so like if yeah if the people around us struggle or like have unmet needs then like that's us yeah exactly struggling with unmet needs yeah exactly they're just there isn't the kind of I don't believe that there is the kind of distinction we've been taught yeah between to make individual yeah yeah well would you be willing to close us off by talking about our favorite subject which is <laughs> books um are do you have any book recommendations for us yeah absolutely um so I tend to like only like it sounds really bad I only have like a very limited attention span so like I tend to like short books yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so a big one is rest is resistance a manifesto by Trisha Hersey um it's really good I think it's probably one of my favorite like contemporary anti-capitalist books uh she's amazing she says uh she's working from like a black liberation framework and it's really good it's basically rest and taking care of yourself as one of the most anti-capitalist acts that you can do um another good one um is weapons of math destruction which is a great title (laughs) uh by kathy o'neill uh and she is a mathematician um and a data scientist and she was really active in the data for black lives movement um but she really illustrates how algorithms and different systems like continually work to oppress folk um but it's a really good way to start to understand 
systems and the level of scale that they have, it's it's a really incredible book. Um, there's another one called The Mom Test, which is not related to any kind of anti-capitalist or liberatory stuff. Um, it's actually about building things. Uh, mm-hmm. And the whole premise is that, like, you don't ask your mom if your idea is good because she's just going to say yes. Um, it's about how to start to, you know, test your ideas out into community, like out in community um, to figure out if what you're building meet someone's like problems and needs my mom thought this podcast was a really good idea yeah shout out to bonnie <laughs> <laughs> go bonnie let's go <laughs> and then uh another one is the field guide to human-centered design by ideo um it's free and online which is pretty cool on uh, pdf version and it's really about building things for people um, rather than people conforming to products. It's very much about like product design and how to do it properly for folk. Um, yeah, those are like my big four, I think. I love that we asked for a book recommendation and you come with four amazing recommendations. Yes. No, that's beautiful. <laughs> I like, wasn't that's sure. I, I, I didn't do like a mega No, book. that's like, okay, cool. I'm like, you're my people. Like that makes total sense to me. Okay, cool. Yeah, we are a book club. We're not going to be upset if you bring us lots of books. Okay, yeah. cool. No, no, it's, yeah, it's it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and doing this interview. Yeah, thank you so um, much for having me. Just being very generous with what you've shared and just we're, I, I wanted to share just this one little little bit because at the end of every one of our episodes, we have a tagline where we'd be like, here we made this this is you know you know we do we do our credits but then we also say like you know if we kind of do like a a turn of phrase where like normally an institution might say call 911 if you're experiencing an emergency but we changed it and we started saying seek out local resources and when we put that tagline together we were thinking about you so <laughs> <laughs> like thank you so when we're talking about local resources at the end of the episode it's like it's it's organizations like call bubby that like we envision being available in our you know more more widely and and for people to get the resources and the attention that they need yeah for us by us yeah yeah for us by us well, I think that wraps us up for the interview. Um, Holly, do you want to stop recording and then we can just like chat like Chill. friends do? <laughs> like <Yeah>. normal people. <laughs> this has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.